Section 6. France's Early Disciples. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. Then forth they went, content for evermore to follow him, in weariness, in painfulness, in perils by the way, through awful vigils in the wilderness, through storms of trouble, hatred, and reproach. Bernardo de Quintavella is perhaps the most important of these first followers, inasmuch as he ultimately took his place as leader of the orders of Friars Minor, which was the name the Franciscans first gave themselves. We have already told how Bernardo came to join Francis and take upon himself the same vows. From that day, his faith and trust in God and his call to him never wavered. That was the secret of his tremendous strength of soul, the strength of a man who is sure of his call and its divinity is as the strength of ten. It was Bernardo whom Francis deputed in the early days of the work to go to Bologna and labor there. Bologna was the center of the universe, as far as learning and culture went, to the Italians of that day. As soon as Bernardo and his followers showed themselves in the town, the children, seeing them dressed so plainly and poorly, laughed and scoffed, and threw dirt and stones at them. They accepted these trials manfully, and made their way to the marketplace. The children, who followed them here, continued to pelt them with stones and dust, and pulled them round by the hoods of their garments. Day after day, and day after day, Bernardo and his little handful returned, though they could never get anybody to give them a civil hearing. Poor fellows, during those first few days they all but starved. There was a doctor of the law who used to pass round by the marketplace every day, and seeing Bernardo patiently put up with such insult and contempt, wondered much to himself. At last he arrived at a conclusion. This man must be a great saint. Going up to him, he said, Who art thou, and whence dost thou come? Bernardo put his hand into his bosom, and gave him what was then the rules of the order. This was, in other words, the divine commission that Francis had received through the gospel for that February day. Go ye forth, and preach the gospel, etc. The doctor read it all through, and then, turning to some of his friends who were standing by, said, Truly, here is the most perfect state of religion I have ever heard of. This man and his companions are the holiest men I have ever met with in this world. Guilty indeed are those who insult him. We ought, on the contrary, to honor him as a true friend of God. Then, addressing Bernardo, he said, If it is thy wish to found a convent in this town in which thou mayest serve God, I will most willingly help thee. Bernardo thanked him, and said, I believe it is our Saviour Jesus Christ 
who hast I inspired thee with this good intention. I most willingly accept the offer to the honor of Christ. Then the doctor took them home with him and entertained them, and presented them with a convenient building which he furnished at his own expense. In a short time Bernardo was much sought after, on account of the holiness, together with the brilliancy of his sermons. The whole town was at his feet. People came from far and near to hear him, and thousands were converted. When things were at a height, Bernardo turned up unexpectedly one day in Assisi, and presented himself before the astonished gaze of Francis. The convent is founded at Bologna, he said. Send other brothers there to keep it up. I can no longer be of any use. Indeed, I fear me that the two great honors I receive might make me lose more than I could gain. Francis, who had heard a great deal of the honor and praise that had been lavished upon Bernardo, thanked God that he had revealed to him the danger his soul was in, and sent someone else to Bologna. In striking contrast to Bernardo was Elias. Elias was quite as clever and brilliant a man as Bernardo but he never seems to have become really sanctified. His pride was a constant stumbling block, and was forever appearing in some new shape or other. Sometimes it would be in an overweening desire to rule, and then his rule would go far and beyond that of Francis's, in fastings and similar austerities. Again we have a picture of him arraying himself in a garment of soft cloth, which could only be said to be modeled after that worn by his brethren. Finally he lapsed altogether, declared that his health was too delicate to stand coarse food and plain living, and left the order. For some time he was an open backslider, but it is currently supposed he was converted before he died. The story of his life is a sad one. Looking back over these lapse of years, one can easily see what he might have been, and how painfully he fell short. The grace of humility never adorned his character for long. He could not see that in God's sight he was less than least. For him it was impossible to lay his intellectual treasure at the low footstool of the crucified. Egidio always remained faithful to his first trust. He also never wavered, never looked back. In the different glimpses we get of his life, we see very clearly the mode of living prescribed by Francis. His intention was never that his disciples were to live on charity, but that they should work for their bread, money being totally forbidden. Work brought them down to the level of the common people, and on the same plane they could more easily reach their hearts and consciences. Egidio, refined and educated though he undoubtedly was, seems to have been able to put his hand to anything. When on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, he was detained at Brindisi. He borrowed a water jug, and filling it, 
went round the town selling water and crying fresh water fresh water like any of the ordinary water carriers on his way back he procured willows and made baskets which he sold to supply himself with food he was always very particular not to take more than he considered was fair for his work obedience was another of egidio's strong points he believed in his call he believed in francis he never questioned an order even when it was manifestly not altogether a wise instruction he received he still considered that obedience was better than sacrifice Maceo appears to have had very little idea what kind of a life he was entering upon when he first joined the band he was not a spiritual man by nature but by degrees he learned to look at the inside of things instead of the outside and to know a little of the mind of god Masayo was big and handsome with a decided gift of speech we are told that because of his physical attractions the people always gave to him the nicest and daintiest portions of food it was a matter of no little wonderment to him when he discovered that for all a certain kind of people were attracted by his appearance yet he had little or no power to convict them of sin and make them long to be good francis by this time had lost all his good looks and become pale and worn and thin with work Maceo compared himself with francis greatly to his superior's disadvantage at last one day he said to him why is it why is it what do you mean asked francis i mean to ask thee said Maceo, why all the world goes after thee why all men wish to see thee to hear thee and to obey thy word thou art not handsome nor learned nor of noble birth how is it then that men go after thee the answer which Maceo received made him see what kind of a character he had come in contact with and from that day there was no more faithful and adoring disciple than handsome Maceo. would you know the reason why all men come after me asked francis it is because the lord has not found among men a more wicked a more imperfect or a greater sinner than i am and to accomplish the wonderful work he intends doing he has not found a creature more vile than i upon the earth for this reason he has chosen me to confound beauty greatness birth and all the science of the world that man may learn that every good gift comes from him and not from the creature that all may glory in the lord sylvester was the first priest who joined francis though a priest he was possessed of very little true religion and was inclined to be somewhat avaricious when francis was rebuilding st damien sylvester had sold him some stones for which he had been well paid now he happened to be among the crowd in the market-place when bernardo was distributing his fortune and it occurred to him that he would get some of it for himself so going up to francis he said 
brother, you did not pay me very well for the stones which you bought of me. Francis, who had not a spark of avarice in his nature, handed him a handful of coins without stopping to count them, saying, Here, are you sufficiently paid now? It is enough, my brother, said Sylvester, taking the money and moving off. But from that hour he never knew a moment's peace. His action haunted him. He could neither sleep by night nor rest by day. The difference between Francis and Bernardo and himself came vividly before him. He repented of his sin, and as soon as ever his affairs would permit, about a year later, he joined Francis. There are some historians who declare that Gene Piero was mad. The majority, however, dispute this, and say that what looked like madness was simply zeal. Zeal, perhaps untempered with discretion. Gene Piero was devoted, self-sacrificing, and faithful. He mourned over his mistakes, and was always ready to acknowledge himself in the wrong. It was with the greatest difficulty that he was taught that he mustn't give away anything and everything he could lay his hands on. When he saw anyone poor or ill-clothed, he would immediately take off his clothes and hand them over. He was at last strictly forbidden to do this. A few days later he met a poor man who begged from him. I have nothing, said Grinipedo, in great compassion, which I could give thee but my tunic, and I am under orders not to give that away. But if thou wilt take it off my back, I will not resist thee. No sooner said than done, and Grinipedo returned home tunicless. When questioned, he said, a good man took it off my back and went away with it. It was necessary to clear everything portable out of Junipero's way, because whatever he could lay his hands on he gave to the poor. His great humility on one occasion nearly led him to the gallows. There was a cruel tyrant named Nicholas, a nobleman living near Viterbo, whom all the town hated. This man had been warned that someone would come in the guise of a poor beggar and take his life. Nicholas gave orders that the castle was to be strictly guarded. A few days later, luckless Guinepero appeared in the vicinity of the castle. On the way thither some young men had seized him, torn his cloak, and covered him with dust so that he was a sight to behold for rags and dirt. As soon as he came near the castle he was taken as a suspicious character and cruelly beaten. He was asked who he was. I am a great sinner, was the answer. He certainly looked like a ruffian. When further asked his designs, he explained, I am a great traitor and unworthy of any mercy. Then they asked if he meant to burn the castle and kill Nicholas. Worse things than these would I do only for God, he replied. Such a hardened, bold-faced criminal never stood before a bar. 
he was taken, tied to a horse's tail, and dragged through the town to the gallows. If it had not been for the intervention of a good man in the crowd, who knew the friars, he would have been hung. "'Brother Gnipero,' said one of the friars one day, "'we are all going out, and by the time we come back will you have got us a little refreshment?' "'Most willingly,' said Gnipero. "'Leave it to me.' Out he went with a sack, and asked food from door to door for his brethren. Soon he was well laden, and returned home. "'What a pity it is,' said Gnipero to himself, as he put on two great pots, that a brother should be lost in the kitchen. I shall cook enough dinner to serve us for two weeks to come, and then we'll give ourselves to prayer. So saying, he piled in everything, salt meat, fresh meat, eggs in their shells, chickens with the feathers on, and vegetables. One of the friars who returned before the others was amazed to see the two enormous pots on a roaring fire, with Guinepero poking at them alternately, protected from the heat by a board he had fastened around his neck. At last dinner was ready, and pouring it out before the hungry friars, he said complacently, Eat a good dinner now, and then we'll go to prayer. There'll be no more cooking for a long time to come, for I have cooked enough for a fortnight. Alas, one historian informs us, there was never a hog in the Campania of Rome so hungry that he could have eaten it. But in spite of all the curious tales we read about the blunderings of this simple soul, his name has been handed down through the ages as that of a saint, for the highway of holiness is such that a wayfaring man, though a fool, shall not err therein. Leo, whom they called the little sheep of God, who became Francis' secretary, was one of the best-loved of the disciples. In Leo, Francis' soul found rest and help and comfort. His nature was simple, affectionate, and refined, and in every respect he was a true Franciscan. There are others whose names we find among the early Franciscans, but the foregoing are those who stand out most prominently. End of section six. Recording by Tom Hirsch.